Greetings to everyone listening. This is the Archon speaking, creator of GreekSpeak.com, and we've reached episode 7 of this podcast that I'm doing with my co-host, The Greek. For those of you who have stuck around for the series, I hope that each episode has helped to build up your insight into the subjects that we're discussing. Thankfully, the feedback has only been positive thus far, so I'm encouraged by that, and um, I hope that we can finish strong with these next couple of episodes. I don't really have a lot to say for this introduction. As everyone is probably familiar with at this point, Greekspeak.com remains a website with neither political, religious, or commercial affiliations, as it's run by myself as a solo project. So, please enjoy the rest of the show, and thanks again for listening. Hi there, Greek. How have you been keeping since the last time? Hi there. Greetings. Sure, I'm a, I'm a little hungry, if you know what I mean. Mm, I do know what you mean. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I figured that last week's discussion about science serves as a good segue into this week's theme, which is food and diet. We'd already touched on some topics regarding that the last time, like how food is digested and how the body transmutes nutrients. So, I thought we'd do a deeper dive into similar subjects, starting with examining the nature of food as something that is beyond just a consumption item, which is what it's been reduced to in the eyes of the public. So food, I think, has sort of gone from something that's grown locally to feed a native population to something whose origins and contents are kind of unknown to most people, thanks to the corporations in charge of the food chains. And also because of the level of convenience in the Western world, many people think that it's just something that you eat to not be hungry, rather than a particular kind of fuel for the body. But since we know that that's not the case, I was wondering if perhaps you could pick apart some of those misconceptions as far as food being more than just something you buy at Walmart or Walgreens. Well, you know, you just made a statement about the uh, corporations being in charge of the food. That's only because they're accommodating the people. If the people didn't want it that way or did not feel that they were being accommodated by them, that that's, that condition wouldn't exist. Uh, hence, uh, as you might have been aware of in the past few decades, there have been many quote-unquote alternative movements towards quote-unquote organic food, local food, uh, uh, you know, different types of diet schemes, and which uh, then eventually the corporations do grab onto, again, to accommodate the masses because of demand. So essentially, if the people are feel like they're being accommodated by that situation, I should say, when you say corporation, these corporations aren't really bad. It's just a... a group of people getting together, forming a legal entity, let's say, it could be done lawfully, but rarely is, uh, for a purpose. And, uh, you know, the corporations have gotten a bad name because not what they are, but what they do. So I just wanted to put that in as a qualifier. Um, okay. And uh, regarding food, what's interesting is I like to go back to historical references, and if you go back into many historical references, even as a cliche, basically bread was considered food, you see, or or, or just a single staple was generally considered a, uh, you know, what people considered as food, you know, meaning that... Um, it seems historically, I mean, there are many accounts, for example, in many, you know, Roman or Greek or Egyptian or whatever courts, medieval courts, where they had elaborate feasts and varieties and all that. But generally, 
you'll find that there is a staple base in every society and it's typically a grain based product. So, you know, maybe that could pr pretty much uh, settle the idea of, you know, gluten free and all this ridiculousness stuff uh, about uh, grains being, you know, whatever. <clears throat> I just wanted to throw this in also when you hear people allergic to gluten, they're not allergic to gluten. They're, they're uh, allergic to a animal grade or poorly modified grade of grain. And of course, the gluten will irritate you because that is the most uh, tenacious part. You know, if anyone is familiar with the anatomy of grain, look at what gluten does, right? It's like um, uh, the, the the protein, the fiber, let's say, not necessarily the, the brand fiber, but it is a, it could be, get very tough on the system, especially if it's coming from a lesser grain species of grain, uh, lesser grade of grain. So I just wanted to throw that out uh, as an idea because you'll find many cultures use grains, you know, rice and cereals as their staple. So that should be, you know, maybe uh, one of the points to be considered when we discuss food. Yeah. And as far as it being something that is not just consumed to not make you hungry, but also something that affects neurological functions and energy levels and overall health. That is something that I don't feel is particularly emphasized to the masses because they just look at it as something to consume. So once, once you come into that understanding that this is something more than that, what are the sort of considerations that you have to then take when you're looking at what to buy and what to eat? Well, you mentioned health and food, and let's just say we will focus just on the food aspect, but I would say more than a 50-50 split, one's mental or spiritual or psychological condition could take precedent in many cases uh, over their health uh, rather than the food that they eat. In other words, a really happy, ignorant, blissful person eating junk food might uh, do better health-wise than a pretty sad panicky, uh, paranoid, um, sounding smart type person that eats health food. I used to tell people, for example, you know, when they, they looked vibrant and whatever, and they had talked about health food, and I said, you look too healthy to be eating health food, you know, because they were already vibrant, right? So we're going to just focus on perhaps the material aspect, but I would stress that there's more than just the material food, you know, like there's food for thought or thought for food also, right? These the the psychological, spiritual, they call it psychosomatic, uh, also aspect of health, which which is a very broad subject, but I, that needs to be considered if the concept of health is is brought up, uh, one's mental state, uh, which is again uh, all those things that I mentioned. Um, I would suggest though that ignoring the material aspect in a qualitative way and what on what the uh, food base is would be a you know, critical mistake, and that's what we're going to pretty much talk about how to pursue in a qualitative, not quantitative way, uh, the best way to source food and what, you know, what food is, I, I hope. Yes, of course. And in keeping with what you just said about quality, I think one of the most um, reoccurring statements that you've made concerning food is the higher the quality of your food, the higher the quality of your life. Can you elaborate a bit on that? So how does an improved diet improve your life and what constitutes an improved diet anyway? Oh, sure. Well, you know, uh, you know, let's just uh, put it this way, you know, um, maybe let's just reverse engineer the concept. What I mean by that is um, 
let's say in from let's say from a biblical sense or a lot of ancient writs, you know, they uh, almost always indirectly promote uh, vegetarianism. And I say indirectly because very rarely does it state anywhere that you should not eat meat, for example, right? But for example, you'll read many times that you know uh, uh, a certain spiritual state or state of health or or, or condition in the body is preferred uh, when you don't uh, even touch meat, right? I just wanted to bring that up uh, from a a reverse uh, point of view that it's almost an indirect dictate from ancient times to uh, to be vegetarian, let's say. But then again, there's also the aspects of, you know, eating animal flesh or flesh. Like, you know, what's interesting about that is if you were to go to a hardcore Chinese restaurant where, you know, they cater to a Chinese clientele and you happen to look at a menu uh, that is in English, uh, if it's a real hardcore Chinese restaurant, the English menu will just be a rough translation of the Chinese menu written in Chinese, Mandarin or Cantonese. And what's interesting is when you look at meat selections, especially from hooved animals, it'll state organ or muscle meat, right? And most Westerners, you know, when they go out and buy, quote unquote, a steak, well, that is the muscle meat of the animal, not the organ meat. You know, the organ would be the intestines, let's say the stomach, the tripe or the liver or kidneys. Uh, and the muscles would be your sirloin and your fillets and your chucks and your roasts, right? And the, the, the reason I bring this up is because it is shocking, for example, to go to a hardcore Chinese restaurant. And when you're looking at beef selections, it'll say beef muscle. And most Westerners will say, what is beef muscle? I'm like, it's steak, dummy. You know, uh, they, they're not used to referring it as such because the, you know, what, what they have there is a qualitative breakdown. For example, in the in the kingdom, in the animal kingdom, uh, and I don't want to drift off too much, but I want to come back. The the uh, when a predator eats a prey animal, uh, and the prey animal is uh, from is a ruminator, in other words, chews the cud. When they eat the animal, they go after the organs, and they actually go after the rumen uh, or that second stomach uh, that the animal ruminates on, uh, which is vegetative matter that it stores in one part of its body, right, to bring up and chew on later. And it's interesting how a predator will eat a prey animal and go for the rumen or the the, the vegetative matter that's pre- partially digested uh, in the animal uh, as the primary aspect. If anyone studies predators, uh, you know, a bear, a cougar, or a lion will go, they will, the, the, the most uh, delicacy part uh, uh, of the prey is the rumen, where the veg- vegetable matter is. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting topic to uh, look at. Not that we uh, as humans do that, but uh, it's interesting to see where the vitality is always in the vegetative matter, you see. Uh, so, uh, and also there's more vitality in the organ meat uh, than there is in the muscle meat, where the adrenalines and things like that are stored. So that that is qualitative to a certain degree, but uh, in our discussion, I think maybe leaning towards the quality uh, when we discuss, well, let's just say in Greek speak, when I like to discuss quality, one of the first things I bring up is um, uh, eating seasonally. And uh, what, do, what do you think, should we uh, perhaps uh, traverse that topic a little bit? Absolutely, we will do that. Um, I'll save it a little more for later because I think that we can still um, dig into a few things here 
one of the things that I'm sort of still wanting to hear about is when we talk about pursue a healthful diet, like we have what the mainstream says that is as far as things like food pyramids and balanced diets and blah, blah, blah. What in your experience has been, you know, the best definition of that? Um, <laughs> the mainstream? You mean the terrorists? <laughs> anyway. there, are, there are many names. <laughs> that, that's, that's what I call them. They're, they're, they're actually, they are the terrorists. You know, it's always backwards. You know, it's just a, a small adjunct to this discussion. You know, like in America, you know, the 9-11, they brought the terrorism to forward to the people's minds. And, you know, they must have won. Because, you know, they said the terrorists hated the freedoms of the Americans. Well, obviously, all the freedoms were taken away after. So the terrorists are winning. You get it? Um, the, the food terrorists are the, the medical community and all that. Uh, there's several levels to that. You know, they tell you, uh, you know, well, red meat. Is, well, first it was charbroiled meat is bad. Then red meat is bad. And then, I don't know, sugar is bad. And, and then now it's wheat is bad. And uh, that's just it's just terrorism. Um we have to keep the population ignorant and in fear. I think stupid and fearful. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the mainstream, you know, especially many of the regulatory and government agencies, they are not approaching, uh, let's say, nutritional information and, you know, mainstream information that people get uh, from a uh, health point of view. They're doing it from a, um, how would you, what would you call property management? See, they view people as livestock because legally you're registered uh, as livestock. You know, it's called human resource, resources or human services, uh, human, uh, you know, livestock. Can people be livestock? Of course, because they're alive and they're in stock. Um, and just like anyone managing livestock, you want to predict if, let's say, you're, running, you're, you're operating a, a ranch with 300 million uh, bits of livestock on there, you have to estimate uh, how you're going to feed them and what certain feed parameters uh, you should have to have a consistency, you know, with the livestock. And that's all the mainstream is. But unfortunately, you know, you're in the age of terror, so you're going to be terrorized about it. Uh, I, I think that uh, there is no, let me just say this again with a capital O, there is no valid information regarding food in the mainstream. There is a lot of information, but there is no valid information. I'll give you an example. They are still basing nutritional information with a caloric count. If anyone doesn't know how they do a caloric count, they, they take like something that looks like a test tube. They put a bit of food in there and they pump oxygen in there, gas, pure gas, as pure as they can get it. Then they have something akin to a spark plug and they seal the uh, me mechanism or the, the, the capsule and they ignite the oxygen, and then within a flash of a moment, it, the oxygen burns everything to a crisp, and they measure the heat given off, and that's the caloric intake. So I don't think the intestines work that way. And also, if you were pooping charcoal, then you could say that you've absorbed all the calories, as they say, right? But that's not the case either. So there's nothing valid in any uh, science uh, university or government or social stuff, media that's uh, regarding food. Uh, and, and I don't want to be a part of a loyal resistance, you know, because the moment you just start talking about how something or an organization or group or social aspect is not good, you become this, this, this uh, resistance. And they like that because in order, you know, an opposition, you know, most entities or groups like to have an opposition, you know, makes them stronger in a way. But so I don't want to be their opposition, but without opposing them, bring up how ridiculous on their face uh, the information that is brought out. Another one is cholesterol. 
that's high in cholesterol. That is a misnomer. Cholesterol is something that's created in the body. Is there's nothing you can eat with cholesterol in it unless you're anyway. The 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 amount of stupidity, it's just sheer stupidity, that is out in the in the world uh, regarding food is um, unfathomable. So it should it needs to be discarded in order to have sensibility. So <laughs> uh, regarding nutrition. Uh, on what you should do uh, if you want to really know, uh, like I said, uh, eating seasonally and promoting indirectly promoting vegetarianism, uh, seeking out um, uh, traditions, uh, what what you found being eaten through culture. You know, I'm talking about the cross latitude aspect of you know you have Asian and Western cultures, Northern and Southern cultures. If you look at their many of their traditions, that would be the most advisable. Uh, way to go. Um, and, and also, by the way, I like to say amateurs give advice and, and pros uh, give diagnoses, right? So when I, when I say advisable, it, 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 it's kind of like it doesn't really get people very far because you have to diagnose your condition, which means, you know, cross, you know, look at it across, uh, right, in a good way and, and figure out what's really going on. I mean, you've talked, I mean, a lot of those points, we'll develop them as we go on. But um, I thought it was interesting that you talk about how the establishment is clueless and how the masses need to be accommodated, because that ties back to sense, uh, cosmic censorship. So given that that censorship has to be an all-encompassing condition, it makes me wonder in what way does the food have to be manipulated or altered to cater to that world where people are blind to what's important? Is it a matter of putting something into the plants or the animals that the food is derived from? or altering the traditions of how food is cooked in the home, or making certain foods favorable over other ones, etc.? Yeah, indirectly promoting veg uh, non-meat or vegetarian is, would be the, the indirect best way to say, you know, vegetation-based diet is best. And, and putting things in all that uh, in food, uh, that would be the spraying and, and storage you know, and transport, you know. Uh, yeah, and then there's the deliberate, you know, cynicism that one might, tend to hear if I say that the people that rule you have certain beliefs. You know, whether you believe them or not doesn't matter. I'm stating as a fact, and for sure, the people that rule uh, the world uh, take control of governments, food supplies, water supplies, and the military, right? For example, if you look at the symbol of the United Nations, that is not a, a map of the world with uh, any kind of geodesic lines and it is that is not an olive branch going around it. You could anyone does research on what an olive branch looks like, we'll see that is not the United Nations symbol. What the United Nations symbol is, is wheat going around uh, what looks like a map of the world in the crosshairs of of a rifle. Right? It's very cynical, but no one sees it because you're not supposed to see it. Right? You're only supposed to see what you're supposed to. So again, the people that rule you control the food uh, industry. So for example, if you look at, uh, at the darkest, deepest conspiracies on the internet, you'll find that uh, there's good enough evidence that a lot of, uh, quote unquote, what they call from a generic sense, satanic powers, uh, if you look at their dossier, they actually own food corporations, real big ones, right? Like Satanists, right? 
uh, and of course, you know, control the governments and all that. Like most people don't know that all of their government leaders have to do a ritual where they crawl on their stomach and uh, in front of a group, a religious group, uh, and uh, there's a bowl of feces, a bowl of blood, and a bowl of urine that they have to partake in. Yes, your leaders do that. So without getting down that dark road, um, these are the people that are running the food um, uh, also, you know, distri distribution. What they do to it is very, what they can do to it regarding bioengineering and all that is all mythology. Um, uh, what happens is they just revive uh, strains of food that have certain um, characteristics. And, and an example of that would be, if anyone's been in a large uh, office building in a major city, you walk into some of these lobbies and they're magnificent indoor lobbies and you'll see like citrus trees, right? Well, those are what's called decorative citrus trees. And one day I just grabbed a, you know, what looked like an orange and plucked it and I tried to open it and eat it. And it, it was all pith. There was nothing resembling an orange fruit inside. It was like a solid starchy mass. So it was a decorative variety of citrus tree that has no, no nutrition really and, you know, other than fiber. So, you know, there, there are decorative uh, uh, strains or, or strands or genes of plants that are inedible. Then there's like what's called animal grade or not for human consumption. Like a lot of soybeans, there's an animal uh, strain that they grow for feeding animals. And there's, you know, like if you go to China or Asia or Korea, the, the, they have many, many varieties of soybeans. And you'll see, I've seen someone who was distributing soybeans once and said, those look really large. Said, yeah, that's the animal soybean that are grown for animals, not for humans, because it doesn't have a lot of nutrition for, let's say, you know, being a high quality soybean. So and us, the, the example I'm giving here is, for example, take the, the consistency of the grains that are being produced for most uh, consumption throughout the world, in most parts, especially the Americas, is there because of the environmentalism, they're seeking out uh, grains that grow fast and require less irrigation or less water, right? Because economically, from uh, from an agriculture economy, if it needs less water, it's cheaper. And if it grows faster, we don't have to wait as long time as money for them. So they're putting out, uh, oh, actually sowing and, and reaping this type of grain versus one that required more hydration, more irrigation, and took longer to grow, you see. And the one that required more irrigation and took longer to grow is more healthful and beneficial for people to eat than the one that doesn't. And also there are, there are plants that are naturally insect repellent. You know, insects won't eat them, you know, as much. And things like that. So the the variety goes on and on and on. If you look at the majority of the vegetables uh, that you see, the, that is uh, like an example is iceberg lettuce. That is a hybridization. You know, plants can be hybridized. You know, give another example. People, you know, there's an old cliche that says, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, I'll tell you, as you ask that question, the chicken farmer did. Because what you call a chicken today is the product of crossbreeding by chicken farmers for the past 500 years. Because if you had seen a chicken from more than 500 years ago, you would not recognize it as such. It would be very thin and tall and lanky. And you might recognize it as a chicken, but nothing like you would consider seeing today. Do you see my point? So uh, there's a tremendous amount of manipulation, natural ma manipulation, hybridization that man has been doing to uh, ultimately end up with the food sources that you see today. Mm. 
And I mean, there are a few corporations that are sort of in the um, most front-facing public light for that sort of thing, and maybe we'll touch on a few of them later. Um, but now I want to look at the connection between food and health and what the interrelationship is there. Because you once said something interesting on a different live stream about food. Um, I think you said, some people say olive oil is healthy, but actually that's inaccurate. Food is neither healthful nor unhealthful. It's rather the body that's either healthy or not. And those two things aren't the same. So even though I know right. you said, you know, a healthy um, kind of grain just a few minutes ago, maybe you were saying that lightly. Because I want you to develop this point a bit. Some would say it doesn't reconcile very well with the fact that some foods are said to be toxic in and of themselves or at least have a toxifying effect on the body and so on. Well, there's food combining. For many people, for example, um, well, 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 nothing is really healthy in itself. It's healthful. I, I like to use that term more. If I Sometimes I also like healthy, but healthful, uh, meaning it, it promotes that versus the opposite, which would, would be difficult for the body to recognize as nutrition, for example. But um, there are there is something called food combining, and when very often the uh, you know there might be a semi toxic substance found in what's considered a fruit or a vegetable, and they'll promote that as being toxic because of that without sensing the combination of the rest of the things around it. Like uh, food combining, for example, for many people, if you eat melon and dairy, or melon and citrus, it, it becomes toxic in the gut, right? If you want to make someone sick, uh, play a joke on them, have them eat a good amount of watermelon and then drink a pint of milk. That will create a toxic effect in the body. Uh, I used to say for melons, for example, anything that's a melon type of fruit, uh, eat it alone or leave it alone because there's a different type of enzyme that works specifically on a melon than would do some, you know, dairy or, or other things or grain, right? So um, when we start discussing what is healthful for a healthy, you know, being, uh, you have to consider, again, seasonality, uh, food combining, uh, then the average uh, outlook. If someone has an average outlook, like it's more beneficial to indirectly be vegetarian, that doesn't mean dogmatic, like I don't eat meat and get that away from me. I'll never eat a chicken nugget or something, right? That, that's not the point. The point is the general outlook to, to promote, um, you know, uh, uh, an, a body that is uh, ultimately um, in a healthy condition would require food that, you know, promotes that. And that, of course, goes again to the understanding of what the human body is and how it works. In essence, we've indirectly touched on that, on how, you know, nothing is absorbed by the body. You're not a, a filter bag uh, that's under pressure, right? Uh, that's what they're trying to tell everyone for the past uh, half century. And um, the, in essence, uh, you know, it's a very broad subject. But um, for for food, again, throughout this whole sonic, uh, however long it is, I'll have to keep repeating that uh, mindset is very important and indirectly be, you know, being vegetarian. Uh, we and also having, uh, you know, knowing how to treat water, having clean clear, cool water. Uh, also, another thing is hygiene, proper hygiene. You know, wash your groin and your armpits uh, often. And, you know, <laughs> basically that is the, pri and underneath your fingernails, that promotes health, by the way, it promotes a healthy condition. For example, um, 
I know we're talking about food, but for hygiene is also very important as well. Uh, if you want to understand hygiene, get a hundred year old or more nurses manual. Uh, they don't do this anymore in nurse, current nursing manuals, but if you have an old nursing manual, especially from turn of the century or before, the, when a patient came in uh, to a clinic, they made sure that their finger underneath their fingernails were trimmed and their hair was trimmed, uh, uh, right? Because because of uh, you know just stuff, and uh, and washing their armpits and groins. I mean that's not really in the purview anymore. Now they just spray antibacterial on you. So so the, you know when we keep bringing up health and food. There's more to that. Again, it's the the actual hygiene and the and the mental state that is is required. Like I said earlier, uh, uh, someone that's really happy and blissful eating junk food will always be better off than someone who's miserable and eating health food. I, I give an example. Years ago, I remember uh, someone uh, came to me and and bought a very expensive bicycle because they had uh, stage three cancer and they were going to die and they wanted to on their bucket list uh, ride across the United States of America with a bike and they they didn't care if they died uh, trying they would what's well, what they wanted to do. Well, I saw the person about eight months later. They were real slim and looked real fit. Almost didn't recognize them. I said, "Man, I don't have cancer anymore. I rode my bike across uh, the country. I ate hot dogs and pizza, and I uh, have no more cancer." So, you see my point. I mean, it's a very touchy subject. Uh, what I do like to discuss is how to improve the quality of what of their of people's intake. You know, because everyone eats just like everyone poops. You know, you, you remember there was a little children's book, "Everyone Poops." No. Anyway, no, I missed that one. Yeah, it, had a, it was a little like for four-year-olds, and it has a little dinosaur on the cover. Yeah, you know. Anyway, uh, so everyone eats, <laughs> and uh, I would suggest that because you're going to eat anyway, why not listen to a sonic that is rational? As uh, if you want to listen to the terrorists, you know, the scientists or whatever, the government uh, agencies, the scientists, the universities. Fine, that's you know, it's it's voluntary, right? Uh, but or you can listen to uh, sound uh, information that has been stored uh, in front of everyone for a very, very long time, uh, simply by uh, the way things are done. So, and by the way, I have no qualms in calling the establishment terrorists because that's what they're doing. They're inflicting fear and uh, chaos and actually hurting people for political reasons. The, the definition of a terrorist is someone who does something for political and economic or social reasons. And if you don't understand the medical and food community, the established medical food community as being terrorists, you don't know the definition of the word terrorist. So I have no problem of using that term accurately that way. So you're going to eat anyway. So might as well discuss things that you see. If you, one of the fastest, most rapid improvements you can do to your life is changing what you eat uh, qualitatively because you're going to be eating anyway. I hear you. Um, I just want to dwell a little bit on something that you've mentioned, I think, twice thus far. So um, this idea of people who, like, it's better to be happy and eat junk food than to be overly serious and sober and say that you're going to pursue some kind of a, what you perceive as a healthful diet. It may not necessarily be what you think you need. Um, because there's this trend over the past 10 years or so of turning everything from food to exercise to religion into some kind of lifestyle branding that's suitable for social media because that's how people manage their public image. So for those people, eating food that looks good on camera can be more important than the food's nutritional value. So 
one of the things you said before was, how many people do you know that are super concerned about their health and diet, and yet they're doing worse than people who barely care at all? And so I was wondering if maybe you could share another anecdote about that, because it's interesting how one person suffers, although he's making all this effort, and then another person gets by hardly making any effort. Well, the, 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 like I said earlier, maybe better than a 50-50 split one's mental condition is, is important, right? I mean, think about a healthful person. Let's say you consider yourself healthy and you are uh, ready to sit down for a meal and uh, the phone rings and you get some really bad news. Very rarely do people of a sane mind will continue. Very often they will say, I just got some bad news and I'm having a, uh, I've lost my appetite, right? Oh, yes, that is true. Right. Hmm. So that's why I said it's probably better than 50-50, the mental uh, state of an individual. Then there's the personal tolerance that some people have in reproducing the toxins. Like, for example, have you ever heard like someone saying, that person, that little girl there, you know, meaning a young lady, would uh, drink this big guy under the table? Right? You've heard many times you've heard something like that. You know, like someone can drink you under the table it means they could handle more alcohol than you. It's not because they're drinking the alcohol and it's uh, being absorbed into your blood and the, you know, the, they put the police put the monitor on you to see how much blood content you have in your blood. It's absurd that if blood was uh, alcohol was absorbed into your blood through the intestine, you would die from sepsis, septic shock. It doesn't happen. The body actually produces that substance. Um, and... Uh, the person who can drink the other person under the table is not reproducing that alcohol in the bloodstream as quickly as the other, right? Where someone who's very light on their uh, drinking or feet, let's say, can have a little bit of uh, some alcohol, whether it's, you know, hard liquor or beer or wine, and feel really tipsy, it's because their body has a propensity to produce that substance. So the same goes with someone, let's say, who's eating toxified food. If, you, if you're wondering if you're eating toxified food, if you're eating food that comes in a very colorful package, it most likely is toxic. And um, their body may not recognize the toxins in the food uh, and reproduce it. And where someone's body who can recognize the toxins and reproduce them will be more detriment, you see? Yeah, I follow you. Yeah. This is a science, this is all based on reality, well, science, you know, real science, where it's not mater just material-based, energetically and ethereal-based as well. You see, uh, the even though this is a materially-based world, right, they want material, everything is material or chemistry, uh, it's ironic how, in many cases, even when you do produce evidence in material form, it's ignored. So that tells you they're hypocrites and they're to be abandoned. In other words, uh, uh, it's like, um, it's kind of hard. It's probably harder to tell someone to abandon the society they live in mentally than to abandon their family. You always hear about people abandoning their family, you know, whatever, and, uh, you know, and they try to start a new life. Well, try to do that with the society you live in. It's even more difficult, but that is part of the necessity if you're living in a sick society or a society of such hypocrisy and evil. Mm. As far as um, this idea of things being different from what you might think with regards to food, there's another thing that um, I've noticed, and perhaps it's a bit tangential, but there's this thing in professional sports at the moment where TV pundits will remark on how improved training and conditioning has become, and yet pro athletes suffer 
more than twice as many injuries now as 30 years ago, which is ironic. Like, you didn't see this many injuries in the NBA when Michael Jordan played basketball, even though the level of training facilities and medicine was considered to be lower back then. So to connect that kind of idea to food, why is it that for all the alleged upswing in gymming and fitness and dieting and variety of foods and medicines and blah, blah, people today look less fit than in ancient times and that for all the healthcare options available, there seems to be a wider variety of ailments affecting people now than before? Because they're morons. Uh, look at, uh, we talked about uh, sports athletes. Let's go to another type of livestock. We could look at uh, racehorses. They suffer the same. Uh, I, I would uh, cons uh, invite anyone to consider looking at uh, racehorse statistics from 70 or 80 years ago, track times and things like that, and look at, uh, supposedly, if you're so advanced, look at the track times that horses race in today. They're much slower. And also they're more susceptible to injuries. And again, racehorses or human athletes, just another livestock again. Again, you're being led by uh, basically pretty bad, let's say, you have um, the – how do you say uh, – maybe I try to uh, hint this in every sonic that the, the earth and all societies on earth are being guided by uh, very malevolent uh, – you know, uh, as let's say entities, uh, you, if you want to consider them being human or not human, that's up to you. Uh, but uh, nothing good will come out of it. You know, that's basically it. So what are you going to do about it is uh, make a qualitative change. Um, I, I would suggest that uh, I, I've always made a suggestions to people who were in reasonable health to go to a sports doctor, by the way, than a regular practitioner who's used to looking at really old people and sedentary people, right? Because, for example, if you have someone who's considered fit as an athlete, go to a regular medical practitioner, they'll always say they're great, right? Because they're always looking at people that should have died 10 years ago that are being pumped up with pharmaceuticals, you know? So you always want to go to a sports doctor because they'll they tend to look at better specimens, but even they have befallen the uh, the idiocy uh, you know, there's a film called Idiocracy. I think it starts off with uh, the top research is, uh, you know, a penis enlargement and uh, hair growth or something like that. So, you know, uh, yeah, they're pretty much morons. I, I have uh, enough firsthand experience with uh, top level surgeons, doctors, practitioners to tell you that they're all morons. And I'm sorry if any of you guys are listening that, you know, I'm not pointing you out by name, but you've admitted to me that what you're doing is stupid anyway. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Basically, the, the the thing is that I get from most of the people that I've spoken with that are surgeons and whatever, they say, well, you know, if someone's in a truck accident, they're going to need me. That's the best they can do. But in terms of understanding, see, you don't have to understand. Like, for example, you can go to the, what is it, Foxconn that makes the iPhones and you'll see hundreds of people putting the iPhones together. And I assure you, no one putting those phones together knows how to put what an how an iPhone is engineered. None of them do, right? Basically, when you go into a doctor, it's an assembly line process. And how do I know that? Well, you have an eye doctor, an ear doctor, a foot doctor, a hand doctor, a skin doctor, heart doctor, right? So it's hmm. an assembly line. They, not, they don't know the whole, they're not, they're not supposed to see the whole thing together. And again, I've never spoken to a researcher 
in biology or surgeon or doctor that knows how the body works and can explain it at all accurately. And they think they do, and they get upset when you show them, for example, a cross-section of the intestines and the lumina, you know, and all. And say, show me how anything gets absorbed. What is the mechanism of absorption? They can't, right? My favorite is uh, neurosurgeons, you know, when you show them a bundle of the ner human nerves uh, anatomically, and then you show them a, bu a bundle of fiber optic cable, and they're exactly the same. That's that's the best for shutting up the neurosurgeons. So have you ever heard of people having light, you know, love and light and the internal light and all that? Yeah, well, it's pretty literal, believe it or not. And how many times have you seen an animation of neurons on uh, on you know, the movies or TV or a video, and they always show you the neuron in action. What do they show you accommodating the image? Flash of light, don't they? It's right in front of you the whole time. I once came across some information that talked about how the modern idea of a balanced diet and food groups and the food pyramid and these kind of things were introduced or at least emphasized in the 70s and that they were pretty much arbitrary or a product of that time, but they've persisted to this day. And I think you've talked about that on other streams prior. So as far as food or diet categorizations go, how useful have you found those things to be? And is there any such thing as what they're calling a balanced diet? Okay, let me just give an analogy and I'll, I'll answer that indirectly. If we were to open a, a, a cattle ranch with 300 million cattle on it, and we had a, a corporate meeting about running this ranch, because remember, it's 300 million cattle. That's a lot of cattle. We're going to have to produce charts and, and diagrams on how we're going to feed these cattle and what parameters we're going to follow, right? Remember, these these are just cattle now we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Okay, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> it has nothing. Those pie charts and charts have nothing to do with with, with people. That's for citizens and uh and residents and uh, whatever you want to identify with that they label that they give you to put on. But uh, but, but at least but somebody yeah. would say the cattle only eat one thing and human beings kind of don't. They're more omnivorous, but cows uh, they eat uh, they eat a lot of bugs. By the way, when they're eating that grass, you know. Wow. The problem what, was what variety. Well, the problem with well, ladybugs, hopefully, but the what what's going on with prionization with cattle. Uh, where they, you know, the idiots say, well, there's the, the, the cattle meat is, is need, needs more protein for, you know, for grooming and these cows for slaughter or for food. So they need more protein. So they go to a catalog and they buy protein to add to the feed, but they never kind of really consider that that protein is cow flesh protein. So now you have cows eating cows and they get prionization in the brain, mad cow. Chickens eating chickens, you know. Oh. Actually, chickens uh, are one of the fowl is one of the birds are one of the interesting things. Uh, if you know anyone who's ever been in a war zone, um, it's not talked about much. But when they come out of the war zone, they they'll and you try to serve chicken or ask about chicken, they'll say, "No, I'll never eat chicken again." Right, because they've. Uh, what 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 do you find a lot of in a war zone? Typically, is corpses, cadavers, bodies, human. And uh, when you're in a war zone and you see bodies and they're not being buried, guess who else you see picking on those bodies and eating those bodies besides dogs and things like that? Chickens. Chickens come out. Get nice fat chickens out of a war zone. So they don't get prionization but, but that easily. Yeah, I'm sure it is possible if they just ate chicken. 
But mm-hmm. I, I would say the nutritional information and all that is a joke, just like calories and uh, everything else. I mean, I, I tell people I was having a discussion about food and energy and, you know, health and, you know, person wants is athletic. And I, I decided to get rid of them because no matter what I said, they just bounced back with the standard B stock BS, you know, academic stuff. And I said, you think the food is really giving you energy directly? I, I mean, I basically wanted to get rid of them and. I started to get more on the insulting uh, side of things. And I said, do you think those bologna and margarine sandwiches you eat every day are that was what's giving you energy? You know, you think the hostess Twinkie that you eat allows you to get up and walk across the room? Not at all. The food powers you indirectly, not directly. So it's kind of like uh, engine oil. Uh, in a car, if you remove from a reciprocating combustion engine the engine oil, you know, any mechanic will tell you, well, the engine will run for a few minutes or less and burn up and blow up because it, it's there to cool the engine. Well, is it? No, it's there to lubricate the engine, but it's also to cool and lubricate, you see. So it, it's, in, you know, direct and indirect, you know what I mean? But nonetheless, if there's no oil in the engine, it will you will destroy the engine. If there is no food in the body, you will destroy the body eventually. But it's indirect. It has an indirect purpose. Let's also touch real quick on this idea of organic food, because the organic food is an industry that prides itself on providing what they call a good alternative to what's being sold in the cheap end of the supermarket. But you've taken a broader view of looking at that, and you know you once said that, Organic food doesn't speak well of a society at large because it no. means people have allowed their regular food to become so toxified that certain corporations have to come along and offer market solutions through organic food. Is that something that you've right. ever brought up to the people in the organic food world? Uh, no, because the people in the organic food world are just as idiotic and moronic as the rest. They're just taking advantage of a, uh, of, uh, of a market scheme or market share. Uh, for example, when I was made aware of it, it was uh, in very, very uh, early, late 70s, early 80s of orga- eating organically. Uh, it was never on any commercial level. Well, a very slight commercial level. It was always on the most local base uh, where, you know, like a farmer's market or a small, small health conscious store that would say that these plants and vegetables are not sprayed with insecticides and synthetic fertilizers. They wouldn't use the term organic and because they're not sprayed with such and such uh there you know you won't be toxified you know by eating the ones that are uh, uh, so you know and that was still important there because there was a strong undercurrent up until the 60s and 70s that wasn't discussed much that a lot of neurological diseases were associated with uh, and neuropathies were associated with what's being sprayed on plants like for example people don't know this and you know you might have deniers of it. the truth is that polio that crippled you know millions of people was because of the spraying of DDT because you know of the flies I mean people are not aware of in the 1920s 30s and 40s there were swarms of flies through cities and suburbs and uh, the outcry to the municipalities uh, was loud enough that they resorted to having spray trucks. And during the day, there'd be crowds of people. They would just start coming through spraying DDT, which was later banned. And, they, and there was even a panel of doctors that spoke at Congress. It says, We're, you guys call it polio, call it whatever you want. You're crippling your citizens. There was a book written about it by a woman who was, who was viewed on very poorly. And to show you how evil and rotten 
the medical community is they actually said, we came up with a polio vaccine and it worked. Aren't we great? And most of the people applauded the doctors for that. They need to make a vaccine for stupidity. So you see, but anyway, then there won't be any more doctors. Yeah, well, there'll be a lot of classes that will disappear if that happens, yeah. not just the doctors. Yeah, you'll just have emergency medical. I mean, it's just like there's certain countries in Europe, they don't really have a standing army because every man between a certain age has to once a month go and do target practice and have uh, an M M16 or a rifle in their house to protect the country, right? In, in a proper society, you won't need doctors. Uh, I mean, actually, doctors have been made fun of even in the biblical times. Um uh, basically joking around like they can't even heal themselves, you know. You just basically have with each community a group of people that know how to address uh, emergency situations. You don't need doctors. I mean, it's a ridiculous, it's just, it, yeah, it's just a, a sick, you know, sick society. I mean, we're too bad we're stuck on this planet. But, you know, just like any issue, it boils down to state of mind. And that's that's if you manipulate, you know, even the American presidents, when in recent wars, they say we're doing this to capture the heart and mind. The, you know, what was it? Uh, Citizen Kane, you know, uh, you you, uh, you get the war, you know, you figure out where you want to go to war and I'll make it happen. You know, meaning the newspaper will make it happen. Right. It's a state of mind. Indeed. Um, let's not forget to talk about the, the seasonality thing. So as far as correlation between health and food goes, one of the most emphasized points that you've made is about how the time of year affects the conditions within the body and how food intake should be brought in alignment with that. So I want to look at um, why eating seasonably is something important, and you've touched on it a bit already. How did you come to learn that this was sort of a pertinent concept, and what's the most obvious evidence that speaks in favor of that? Well, I learned through observation from a very young age that the diet changed during the when it was, let's say, warm outside the hot seasons, you know, late spring, summer, early fall. We ate differently than we did in midwinter. And anyone will notice that, you know, uh, I'll have a hot, fresh, uh, a, a cool, fresh salad and some fruit in the summer. And in the winter, I want a hot bowl of soup. Right. That's your, anyone will realize that that is an occurrence, a normal, natural occurrence in most societies. Uh, and then I started uh, looking at um, uh, the contrast from coming from a European background to the American background that I lived in on how crappy and tasteless the American food was. And I also noticed how consistently bad it was because they ate almost, they tried to eat the same stuff all year round. Then I discovered uh, macrobiotics, which was a short stint. It was a good. It was something that was formed uh, in the 70s through 80s, and I came in in the middle of it. I actually knew some of the people that formed it in this country: um, uh, Shizuko Yamamoto and Michio Kushi and Aveline Kushi. Uh, Herman Ihara did not know, and George Asawa had died before. But I was around those people, and um, a lot of what they said made enough sense for me to remember the aspect, um, not be, to be so sino, uh, nipocentric, meaning Japanese-centric, but uh, taking with me um, the idea that it's seasonal affects the body. And also there is a blood chemistry that's involved, and it's provable that uh, in colder climates, uh, the blood tends to be a little thicker. Not that the blood is the be-all, end-all, 
but the blood is a little thicker than in warmer climates, right? Like for example, in a cold climate, you get a hot fever and in a hot climate, you get a cold fever. So there's a reversal, right? So there is a difference there. So the, the cross seasonal chemical aspect or influence would be, for example, if you're living in a cold climate and you eat something grown in the tropics, that food will tend to adjust the body to a tropical condition and you will get, you will feel uncomfortable and you will not be able to warm yourself. Where if you're in a hot climate and you eat food that's grown in a cold climate, it will tend to acclimate your body to a colder climate and you won't be able to cool down. Uh, you know, another analogy would be if you're up near the North Pole or the South Pole and you eat a banana, you won't be able to stay warm. And if you're living near the equator or the tropics and you eat salmon fish from the Arctic, you won't be able to cool down. And I found this to be true through experimentation. Hmm. But for somebody who wants to be a detractor of what you're talking about, they might say, well, but look at all the people who don't eat seasonally, which constitutes, I don't know, only like 80% of the world's population, and they're fine. I mean, sure, they get sick, but not outside the realm of what's reasonable. Everybody gets sick anyway, and it's not like your, your diet will cure contagion or cancer or even prevent headaches. So how pertinent is it really beyond being just a recommendation, beyond many other dietary recommendations? Depends on what quality you're looking for. It's just like headphones or bicycles or cars or bed sheets. You know, I like these bed sheets that everybody else uses. Yeah, I get a little bit of rash, but it's okay. Everybody else is using them. All right. Well, these headphones work. I paid a dollar for them at the dollar store. They're great. They work. Everybody else buys them. They're always out of stock. I mean, it's just a qualitative issue. Now, in many cases, I have not found that people that had, let's say, advanced forms of illness do much better by eating seasonally. But I do have found nine out of 10 times, if not 10 out of 10 times, that when people do eat seasonally, they are far more comfortable during that season. I've had direct experimentation and uh, subjective and objective experimentation done by others. What I mean by subjective and objective, objective would be where they're actually doing a study and being strict. And subjective means, yeah, I cut out some of the things I used to eat, you know, kind of, you know, more loose about it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's something to be considered, but it doesn't seem to be observably the be all end all because we have at the end of the day adjusted to, or people have largely adjusted to a world where they completely don't eat seasonally and they're not dropping as flies in any case. No, uh, but it's a cumulative thing. You know, like for example, with race cars, I remember some people buying uh, the Porsche 911 body to race on a track. And one of the things about a race car is making it as light, you know, the horsepower to, to weight ratio, you want to make it as lightweight as possible. And you, the way you do that is not by changing one component, making it lighter, but taking off a little bit of weight off of as many components as possible. It's done in the airplane industry. For example, years ago, I remember if it costs less than $300 to remove a pound off of an airplane part, do it, right? Because you're going to get the returns on that on the fuel. So, you, you know, it's a cumulative effect. Again, better than 50-50 split, your mindset is important. Eating seasonally is important. Seeking quality food is important if you can get it. Basically, what they call heirloom or more original type grains and vegetables, right, versus the newer ones that are being presented and faked as allergies, just like they the fake a polio vaccine, right? So there are many aspects to, to this when you look at it cumulatively. And then the cumulative effect is the, the gross effect, you know, the single effect you could look at. Mm. 
let's also look at um, fake food, by which I mean food that observably does the opposite of what we can all agree food is supposed to do. So at the broadest level of analysis, we can agree that the purpose of food is to provide the body with nutritional needs and energy levels that allow it to remain vitalized and healthful. And yet anyone who's paying attention will have noticed how certain foods, particularly fast foods, leave you feeling less vitalized or sometimes even groggy or sleepy. And maybe if you're, I mean, maybe if you're not a child, uh, you know, I, I notice that children seem to be able to eat a lot of that stuff and it doesn't seem to visibly affect them. But for me, it became noticeable as an adult when I stopped eating fast food for a few months and then came back to it that it had an adverse effect. What can be said about that type of thing where processed foods seem to not really help you with vitality and health? Well, it's the intent behind it and the actual quality of the food. Again, like, for example, uh, certain types of cheeses are processed food. You know, I mean, how do you make cheese, right? And it can be beneficial. I mean, uh, for example, if you're doing a vegetarian diet and you look at something like tempeh, which is a fermented soybean uh, bean or miso, which is a fermented bean paste, so those are processed. You know, they're crushed, filtered, salted, cured. Um, it's the matter of quality again. I mean, is there such thing as a quality fast food? Of course there is. Have you ever heard of like a bean burrito? You know, that's quality. I mean, that's fast food. And, and if it's a quality flour tortilla and quality beans, it's good. But, you know, again, I think we go back, uh, if we go back to the earlier intent of the major corporations, which are the government, by the way, there is no government there is no corporation it's just this big amalgamation it's hard to discern but for for typical um discussion you would say that uh, their intent is evil uh but evil is real evil is always presented as good right and whenever you bring up fast food or because fast food by the way is not just for convenience it, it, it it's also a subculture right i mean for many people i know for example in the ghetto it's prestigious to eat McDonald's. I remember in the 80s and 90s, if you lived in the ghetto and you ate at McDonald's, you were living large, right? So, uh, I mean, it's it's more than just call it, call it when you say fast food. I'm not sure if it can be defined outside of the negativity uh, uh, that's been acquired by the term through the, you know, the corporate industrial uh, mal malintent aspect of it. Because uh, I eat fast food very often. Like if I want fast food, uh, I will prepare uh, something that is uh, easy to prepare uh, uh, and and take it with me uh, uh, if I'm traveling. But it's not the fast food when we say fast food as a, as a genre of food, which is basically industrial malintent. You know, I, I think it goes beyond um, beyond. Uh, just profit. I think it's everything is becoming a religion, right? Uh, you know, or uh, there's a, a spiritual aspect to it. Uh, what I mean by that, again, like I started off earlier, you know, the, the people that are what are generally referred to as Satanists, they are interested in controlling the political scene, which they do the food and the water. I mean, that's and it's a fact. If anyone has done research on that, and I'm talking beyond the satanic panic from the 80s and 90s, which is covered up. But if you were to, you know, these are malevolent people with malevolent uh, intent, you'll find that uh, they're very much into uh, the, the genre of fast food. Like, uh, I don't know if anyone remembers a couple of years ago, there was a, a radical rabbi that said uh, they had some McDonald's beef patties tasted and there was uh, evidence of human flesh in them, right? 
And, uh, and you know, most people would laugh at that. Some people say that sounds, sounds kind of scary. But I'll tell you, if, if uh, even a rumor of that would ring more true, not because it happened by accident, but because it's actually part of the religion. You see, they're part that they, that they be, what they believe in. You know what I mean? What are some of the more significant industrial developments that come to mind for you in terms of the degradation of food quality? Because a lot is said about the Monsantos and the Bayers of the world, uh, but whether we talk about factory farming or spraying of pesticides or the prevalence of food labs or the rise of tinned foods, etc., is there anything that you would put your finger on that has contributed the most to today's state of food? No, it's cumulative. It's it's. You ever heard of the term? It's what's in the water, and it's true that uh, people who don't have municipal water that rely on a spring are more intelligent. Their IQs are higher. You know, if you're going to use that as a measurement, it's water, it's air, it's food, it's mindset, it's education. Right? It's it's all of it. It's the packaging. Believe it or not, you can take good food and wrap it in packaging that has uh, fungicides on it because if you're adding the chemical to the packaging it's not a food ingredient it's a packaging ingredient and there's no uh, criteria for listing um, what's added to the packaging I remember once going to a convention and uh, I asked someone what are you doing here and he says well you wouldn't know I said why he says because I'm in food chemicals and uh, packaging chemicals I said, what do you mean he says well I make preservatives that we add to you know food packaging well, really? He says, yeah, we have fungicides, bactericides, and things like that. Yeah, and they add it to the package, not to the food, so you don't, it doesn't have to be labeled. I mean, that goes beyond food, but it has a detrimental effect as well. That's very interesting. I've never really given that much thought. That's worth looking into. Yeah, there's very little information on it, but there's enough information that's, that's you know, with facts in hand that you could see it's, it's, uh, it's indisputable. Hmm. Another thing to um, that I want to look at is this is this idea of taste and perhaps you know it's a bit tangential but I think it's you know dis distantly related to this whole conversation about food. I was reading something by George Orwell a few months ago and um, he said something interesting about food because he doesn't usually talk about it as far as I know. But he said in the highly mecha mechanical countries that is the Western world, thanks to tin food and cold storage and synthetic flavoring. The palate is almost a dead organ. As you can see by looking at any greengrocer's shop, what the majority of English people mean by an apple is a lump of highly colored cotton wool from America. They will devour these things with pleasure and let the English apples rot under the trees. It's the standardized, machine-made look of the American apple that appeals to them, and the superior taste of English apples is something that they don't notice. So when I read that, it made me think about something that you once said that I don't remember the quote, exactly but essentially you were saying that people what people describe as the taste of their food they don't use the proper adjectives for that they just say oh well, this tastes good or this tastes bad and meanwhile good and bad are not indicators of taste or flavor adjectives they're moral adjectives and so the language to even describe taste doesn't really exist in people's vocabulary and one quote that i think you did say was that some people can't taste their food very well because they don't want to. They're already attached to their established palate and they can't move away from it. And so all food is either good or bad to them because they haven't developed a sense of nuance in their taste. Can you elaborate on that a bit more and how, you know, those sensibilities are missing from people's awareness and what contributes to that? 
Sure, there's a level of conditioning and, and there's a level of, let's say, uh, categorization that I like to use. And then we'll, we'll try to bring the conditioning part in as well. I typically categorize people as either having a, a, a good palate. And uh, uh, that means they have a good sense of smell and taste. And that means they have a high potential of uh, producing very tasty food or good food preparation if they were to be employed as a chef, for example, or the one who does the cooking. Then I have the one that I call a juvenile palate, which tends to prefer foods and tastes that young children do. And then I have one category that I consider to be the corrupted palate, which is either from it's so desensitized uh, uh, physically by eating poor food that might as well turn it off. Just like someone, you know, like a if you saw someone cut in half and and, and uh, thrown into the street, you would probably feel sick. Where a seasoned paramedic was desensitized to that, you know, an emergency technician would just say, "Let's hurry up and clean this guy because I want to finish eating the sandwich I have in the car." Right. So uh, it, it's it's a matter of you know conditioning that way and from eating bad food from what I call standard American diet or standard white people food, you know, like Northern Europe as well. Um. And, you know, there are places on the continent of Africa, too, that are, have a ghastly diet. So it, but it, generally, most people will be aware of the white people food or American diet as being very poor. But I would also suggest that um, the corrupted palate is from eating just overly flavored, like you mentioned, the synthetic flavors added to food. Uh, like, for example, um, uh, you know, someone who's, let's say, uh, likes to drink strong alcohol, won't find a beer as being accommodating. It'll be like water to them because they're used to a stronger brand, you know, a stronger type. So that's another way of corrupting it. Um, you know, certain drugs, for example, a drug a tolerance to uh, f uh, uh, synthetic additives and natural additives. Uh, like, for example, I'll just throw this in as a natural additive. If you take celery juice, if you juice celery, that has uh, like in... in uh, in Japanese, they would call it oshiumami, which means delicious flavor when you add it to things that are savory. So, for example, if you had a, uh, a menu that you cooked at home, general variety of food, savory dishes, and you added celery juice to all those dishes, whether it was a pasta or rice, a stew, a savory meal, anything, and you consistently added celery juice to it for a few weeks or months, and then you stopped adding the celery juice as an ingredient in most of the savory dishes, you would find them to be very bland and almost not, ta not tasteful because you got used to that extra, very uh, in flavor enhancing uh, celery juice, you see. One, one aspect of that is again, typical Americans that don't cook and buy a lot of prepared foods. There are things called modified food starch, modified corn starch, natural flavors or MSG are all the same, usually flavor enhancers. And uh, they don't find food that has that, uh, that lacks that ingredient as being tasty. For example, I had years ago, I had a client, pretty wealthy client who went on a re vacation to Rome and various parts of Italy and Spain, which, and you know, they didn't slum it. They actually went to the, you know, the better end of travel. And they, they said that the food there was terrible. <laughs> I was like, are you, you know, this is a typical American uh, uh, palate, you know, that he had. And of course it would be because he was used to this corrupted 
you know, uh, Stouffer's and McDonald's and uh, Chick-fil-A sandwiches and his wife microwaving preheated, you know, pre-cooked meals and things like that. These are wealthy people, too. And he went to uh, places like Rome and uh, Spain and Barcelona and places that had some of the best uh, food cultures and to best tasting food in the world and found it to be distasteful. You see how subjective it can be. So... And uh, and it's not like this person didn't have access to food. I'll give you an example. I'm not giving their identity too much, but this person's family was, you could trace it back to the Costanoga wagon. They they came here building most of the wagons that were uh, that were used to settle the country, uh, you know, uh, and they still had the, you know, they were pretty wealthy. So old money and they still did they didn't know how to eat and they were fully corrupted so again i think your social status does hasn't much to do as as culture and tradition uh, in this case mm. well i think we would be remiss to talk about food and taste and things of this nature and not mention something about one of the most common sources of people's food which is restaurants because they don't want to cook it themselves they want to go out and let somebody else cook it for them especially if they have money so I want to pick your brain as someone who has some know-how about that sphere. What kind of trivia can you share about how the restaurant business sources its ingredients or compiles its menus or anything that would enlighten someone as to what it is that they're eating at their average restaurant? Ooh, restaurants. Okay, from a, from a decency point of view, a good food experience has always gotten from what I would call a supper club, not a restaurant. Most restaurants will, no matter how much good intent they have, they will fail to make a profit if they seek out only quality. And they do exist, and that's why when you do see, you know, hot cuisine restaurants, they they only stay in business for a few years, and it's intended to do that because it's not necessarily a money-making scheme. Um, but supper clubs are different; uh, it's a whole different genre, uh, less public, more specialized. But I would suggest that uh, for restaurant eating, the rule of thumb is clean kitchen is better food. If a restaurant is not clean, and I don't mean a, a, an obvious cleanliness, that as well, but there's also a, a deep cleanliness. Like look up at the ceiling. If there's dust by the vents or the lighting, look at the corners uh, of things. You know, If it's not really clean, it's not going to taste as good as it could. Also, if you're going to a restaurant, uh, know their kitchen. Uh, if you can't see the kitchen uh, uh, and, and you ask to see the kitchen, they almost take that as an insult and typically refuse. I like to put on the, the retard move, you know, like I, I do, uh, um, like if they have the kitchen closed and I want to go in there, I'll just, uh, you know, I target what I think is the kitchen and I just barge in and I keep walking and I look around and they say, hey, what are you doing here? You know, get out of here. And I just turn around and say, oh, I'm looking for the bathroom. Is it the bathroom? You know, or something <laughs> like that, right? And I say, I thought this was the ba right? I thought this was the bathroom, right? Oh, no, get out of here. The bathroom's the other way. Of course I knew, but I just wanted to see it. Then I'll go back to my seat and say, honey, let's get out of here, right? Uh, another thing is when your a waiter, a waiter or a waitress brings you a menu and, you know, before you look at, act like you're looking at the menu, you know, and you look at the wait person and say, what's good here? What do you eat? And believe it or not, more than once I've had the waiter or the waitress say to me, eat here? No, I would never eat here. Right. Meaning the waitress. <laughs> you're like, OK, thanks very much. Bye bye. You know, and I, I might even leave a dollar or two as a tip. 
because that's actually worth, you know, their you know, their service. You know, they actually provided you a service by the waiter or waitress telling you that we don't, I don't eat here, right? I mean, that you know, they deserve a tip just for that and just walk out. Do you, you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So those are some basic tips. If and you know, there's also a lot of masquerading of an open kitchen being a benefit. Yes, uh, there are some places, many places, more than not, by the way, new establishments that are kind of more of a casual, but yet tend to be higher quality have open kitchens, right? And that's good also. But but also, you still look at the floor. Is it clean, right? You know, look at what um, you know. There, there's a, a an Asian. I'm not going to mention the name, but there's an Asian fast food place. I have discovered some good Asian restaurants again here. Uh, you know, not. I mean, there are a lot of Asian restaurants where you bring your own cat and you get a free egg roll, right? And, and don't laugh at that because there are some Asian restaurants that are hardcore Asian restaurants that do have cat on the menu on the Chinese menu. And unless you know what cat tastes like and you happen to get that, you won't know. You'll just say this is something very gamey, you know. But, you know, I, I've had a, I've had experience with someone who was an anthropologist who traveled the world and once, you know, did bust a restaurant here in town by serving cat. And they did. You know, you called the, you know, the authorities on it, by the way, on them. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, uh, there's an Asian restaurant that has an open kitchen, uh, fast food. You can guess who they are. I mean, uh, they have a logo, which is an animal. But anyway, um, uh, they they have an open right. You could see how, where they're doing all the food prep. But when they have certain ingredients, it's just this big frozen slab, you know, of material, you know. So you, and you could see that's sourced from a, you know, not such a good quality. But at least it's an open kitchen, right? So, I mean, I remember once, uh, you know, barging into a uh, a kitchen that I, you know, wanted to eat at a certain place or it was traveling, barged into the kitchen like this, and you're looking in your bathroom, you know, kind of thing. And they yelled at me and I looked on the floor and they had, you know, cooking pots with mops in them, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, we're out of here, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. You got you to have fun. You know, I mean, the, 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 you know, here's the thing. History, the, the current society, any any society you look at right now is not going to be on the good side of history, you know, uh, in the future. So you can make you, you just don't get yourself in trouble, you know, uh, you know, publicly, uh, you know, with, with making demands or too many crazy comments. But, you know, I, I do. I, I will speak if you want to know what I'm thinking, just listening to what I'm saying. And uh, you, you're probably thinking the same once you're made aware of it. Uh, yeah, it's so. I do want to stay on this uh, thing a little bit more because it, it certainly is funny, but there's a serious aspect to it. I mean, you once gave an analogy that was connected to something other than food. I don't remember what it was, but I think you were talking about inefficiency within uh, industries and or efficiency or how to be efficient. And when you mentioned the thing about rats in the hot dog factory, so basically one would think that health and sanitation regulations would forbid food factory owners from allowing rats to fester in their factories. But in fact, this is actually such a challenging task that it would effectively halt the production of certain foods if the regulatory bodies were insistent to follow the rules. So in order to allow for the business to continue, a minimum amount of, you know, unhygienic things like rats are allowed to exist in the, for example, hot dog factory, although it's presented to the public that this is, you know, not the case. Well, there's a tolerance for rat fecal matter in the hot dogs, for example. Oh, right, that. Right, and you know, it was never really zero. As the testing got more stringent and more "quote unquote" clinical, they found that all hot dog uh, 
whatever suppliers had fecal matter in their food and they couldn't shut them all down. So then they just noticed that they will just raise the acceptable limit. So what we do find in it is still acceptable, right? Right. So I wanted to pivot from that into the subject of unsanitary kitchen conditions that um, you may be aware of are tolerated in the restaurant business because I've seen many a rat in restaurant kitchens and everybody knows it in the kitchen and they just it's just known, you know, but the guests wouldn't guess it. Yeah. Well, uh, you're living in a society. Let me just let's just divert from the topic a little bit. Uh, you notice that there's been certain agendas regarding people's gender and sexuality and gender fluidity and all that. That's been politicized, and if you oppose it, you're, you know, you're, it's it's a crime, right? You've noticed that it's been happening in the past decade. Uh, let me just put it this way. What's in the works right now is, it's already finished, it just hasn't been implant, implemented, is the uh, promotion and uh, adherence to cannibalism. So if you're going to be served uh, fellow, let's say, humans that are processed in your food knowingly, and you can't say anything negative about it, uh, what, what? How bad is rat material? That's pretty benign. Yeah. So just get ready. That's the next one of the next few things that's coming. You know. So it's already done. The whole thing is put together, and you've been actually aborted fetuses and uh, other things like that are in the food chain already, uh, and in the drug chain. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the more disconcerting things that I found, and perhaps you mentioned it at some point, was the prevalence of human hair in the bread. I think they use it as some kind of a binder. Toe conditioner. From, yeah. Yeah. There's a protein, I think it's lysine or something. It, it's it, correct. It's, I, I don't want to say, I'm not sure what the, it's, it's, I think it's used as a dough conditioner. Yeah. And because of the, uh, in China, there's uh, uh, grooming codes. Uh, you know, the fact, when you work in a factory in a lot of the mainland Chinese, government fact you know big corporate factories you know you dorm there you sleep there you eat there you work you know you basically it's like going to the military you work at the factory and you might take off a few days or a week a year to go back to the town where you came from but you spend all your time there and they have uh, grooming regulations and you know they the, the, just like google where you go you work at google you, you get your laundry done your haircut yeah uh, uh well you work in a chinese factory they cut your hair frequently and that Basically, by the end of the week, you have uh, billions of, you know, pounds of hair. Uh, you could process it into dough conditioner. For all, so all your, your big takeout pizza, corporate pizzas, you know, they have the laboratory. You know, the food is designed in the, it's called a food lab. And they say, we need dough conditioner. Well, who's got the best price on it, right? That's how it gets into the uh, food uh, chain. Yeah, anytime I go to a supermarket now and I see bread for under a dollar, I'm like, nope, we're not getting that. Uh, unknown, it has to be studied, you know, to a degree. But uh, but I'll tell you, if you have a hearth, an oven, or something, or even a pan, you can make your own flatbread, you know, very easily. It takes literally, once the dough is prepared in a few minutes, less than a minute to make. And it's delicious. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good segue into the last thing that we'll look at, which is food preparation. And I mean, I think you once said something interesting about how people view cooking food. You said people act like cooking meat kills the bacteria that might be present in it. But if there's that much bacteria in it, why are you eating it in the first place? If you think the meat is tainted and that cooking will prevent foodborne illness, it's already questionable in quality. It's not even like you got rid of the bacteria. It's just cooked bacteria now. 
it's not bad bacteria. You are bac your body is 90% bacteria anyway. What do you think a cells are? Uh, it's about is the animal diseased or not? It's called a downer. A downer, like there are a lot of downer animals. And I think up until about seven or eight years ago, uh, most government regulations told food, you know, uh, you know, agricultural people, if you have a downer animal, you can't put it in the food chain. Not anymore. Now downers are allowed into the food chain, diseased, because they're all diseased anyway. There's a big concern, for example, with salmonella and eggs and chicken. That's a disease. You shouldn't be, you can't cook it out. Uh, th there's a lady I wanted to give uh, props to. Uh, I don't. I, she's about 50% uh, there, which is a lot to say. Her, her name is Dr. Lorraine Day, and uh, you just uh, go into. She has a couple of YouTube interviews. She's fascinating. She doesn't know. She's somewhat censored, but she's had tremendous success. Look at her recent photos. Uh, she's 82, and she looks like a well-kept 55-year-old. And she ended up using uh, juicing and distilled water and a few other practices to beat stage four cancer. And anyone can uh, if you do what she says, her regimen to a degree. Uh, and uh, I guess I, I brought her up because uh, she has a few analogies, you know, um, because uh, like she gives one analogy with chicken. You know, when you uh, buy animal products now, it's a, the package says it may contain up to 10% water. Well, the, the chicken, when they process it at the slaughtering uh, house, uh, when it's initially gutted, it's dropped into a pool of water and it's fecal water. And they let the chicken sit there for a given amount of time so the chicken carcass can absorb the water. So it's basically absorbing fecal matter water into the tissue. And she made a comment to someone who says, well, I cook my chicken well. And she goes, well, you're just cooking your fecal matter well. It doesn't matter if you cook the fecal matter well. It's still eating fecal matter, right? You want raw fecal matter or cooked fecal matter? How well, do, how good does that sound, right? Yeah. You know, do you want a diseased, you want to eat diseased animals raw or you want to eat them well done? What's the difference? And adrenaline cannot be cooked out of out of meat. By the way, if you, anyone wants to look up what uh, at what temperature the adrenaline hormone and enzymes break down, it's three or four times beyond what well done is. It's in the hundreds of degrees, right? It's amazing how the this is all by design. Is almost you know when you start to get a society forming uh, with evil premises, you know the thing. It's very easy to, to turn their natural surroundings uh, as weapons against them. It's such a fine, delicate balance. You you have to love the perfection of it. You want to be evil. The thing that you you know normally do now will be your you know your evil uh, will be the to what would you call uh, would payback on you. Mm. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that that goes beyond so many people's purview. But I think, yeah, if you pay attention to things, you have to ask yourself those questions: why certain malevolent things are so prominent? Right. It's no secret. Uh, anyone has access to what we're talking about in terms of the dark side. Uh, it's not that you need to uh, be a vehement student of it, but uh, be aware of it. And uh, as your curiosity leads you, I think just avoiding it completely, you know, as some people might say, well, my, you know, my spirit, my brain doesn't need to know any of that. Well, that's fine. But I'll notice uh, most of the time those people fall, you know, uh, forward into many of the agendas, you know, thinking that they're good. Mm. Okay. Um, we're an hour and a half in, so we'll just wrap up with, um, I got, 
three types of food that I'm just going to throw at you, and maybe you can give me some recommendations for how to do them well, cook them well, prepare them well, based on your experience. Um, so let's start with salad. I know it's very generic, but, you know, take, give it your best shot. Oh, salad is a very general thing. I would say, instead of saying salad, I would suggest, uh, you know, vegetable, leafy green, right? Um, there's a fruit salad also. Uh, most people would, uh, in the West, consider a salad to be, you know, a leafy green with seasonal vegetable. There's something also called a slaw or a pressed salad, which I would like to make people more aware of. Uh, like something called coniferous uh, vegetables or, or things like kale and collard and Swiss chard, which are tend to be more hearty, which are more associated with, you know, a savory pot dish, cooking it, you know, in a pot. I would suggest uh, like cabbage coleslaw, right? Cabbage is a very hearty leaf and it's sliced real thin and mixed with a dressing, right? A pressed salad is very similar to that. You, you know, if you could remove the stem material, even with uh, cabbage, if you remove the stem material, it makes it more pleasant to eat. But you just uh, you would cut the hearty vegetable or the hearty leafy green and add a dressing to it. It could be an acid, you know, citrus. Uh, I've been using citrus more than uh, vinegars lately, you know, for the acidity aspect than using olive oil and uh, both raw sesame oil and toasted sesame oil as the oils. Uh, and mixing it all together and then actually putting weight on it, you know, so if you have it in a bowl, uh, you, you, you find a small plate that's correspondingly smaller than the edge of the bowl that would, if you were to put a weight on it, you know, um, a jar with water, let's say, or a lead weight or another small pot to weigh down the salad, actually press on it. It's a form of cooking the vegetable, right? It's a pressed salad. Yeah. Have you ever seen like wilted lettuce, you know? If you take lettuce and you kind of work it in your hands and wilt it and mush it up, it's very soft. It's sometimes not pleasing for a lettuce, but for a hearty green vegetable like a kale, a collard, or a Swiss chard, uh, I would recommend a or cabbage make a pressed salad, and it uh, breaks down without using heat, and it's actually far more nutritious than you know a wimpy lettuce, let's say. That's what I have to say about salads. And in terms of fruit salads, when it's melon, eat it alone or leave it alone. If you ever see melon, I would suggest for many people, whoever has heard me say that and has followed that says, yes, I always feel better by not eating melon with other things as they're presented fashionably in many times, you know. So that's what I have to say about salads. Okay. Uh, pizza. Pizza is the most popular food in the world, believe it or not, supposedly, according to the media that I watch occasionally. And I think Norway eats more pizza than anyone else in the world. So, or, or per capita, or is the number one food there? What is it? Well, it's a flatbread, essentially, or semi-flatbread. Some styles are very heavy. Um, very easy to prepare is the idea, and it's savory. Of course, there are toppings. Uh, personally, I, I'm not into toppings. I think that if you have a high-quality, what's called crust or dough, um, uh, assembled with a high-quality sauce, cheese or no cheese is enough uh the more basic the better if you um want to get into making pizzas i think uh, uh there was a, another chat uh well, a chat that i used to uh, the new greek speak i think i haven't frequented that in a while i've kind of tried to stay out of public eye other than this i think i've posted photos of pizzas that i've made in, in a hurry um, and they would rival anything you could buy at a store so what i would suggest about pizza besides being popular and having 
if you like to eat that sort of thing, learn how to make it yourself. Indeed, but that's where we want the tips, Greek. Like, why are you saying that you wouldn't have ingredients that flies in the face of convention completely? At least, you know, I want to respect that convention. We want ingredients oh, ingre on the pizza. Oh, ingredients on the pizza. Well, there's many. Like I said, uh, if you're going to go, let's say, quote unquote, on the vegan side, uh, uh, let's work it backwards. Uh, you can, you don't have to have cheese on pizza. And you don't even have to have sauce on pizza. So what are we talking about? Basically, you're making a, uh, a low rise or flatbread with some kind of savory topping or sauce on it. That's basically it. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, some of the more elaborate uh, exotic pizzas don't even have sauce or cheese or it might just be cheese or just sauce. Right. There's a high end pizza place uh, that was open that opened here and. The pizza is just bread and sauce. There's no cheese. It's cheese costs extra. I was like, what the hell is that? You know, well, because they're striving to do the best quality dough, the best quality sauce. Well, what do you know about making dough or bread? Right. Well, well, one thing you might learn is when you make a loaf of bread, you know, with that high rise, it takes it's leavened, it takes a long time to, to rise it. And it's very tall. It takes a lot of heat, long time to cook. Right. Uh, relative to a low rise dough, um, which is relatively low, it takes less heat and less energy. Another thing about making pizza is you can make pizza in a pan. If you have a low-rise dough, something yeasted or not, you can spread it out, put it on a pan, and flip it over, so it cooks on both sides. And you when and have your toppings immediately ready, so when you flip it, that is still hot, and put your toppings on that, and then cover it so it steam or put it under a broiler. I mean, uh, so many different ways. My, I would suggest there's a if you want to learn how to make quick pizzas, uh, there's something called a Greek pita. Uh, literally, uh, it's labeled Greek pita. It's like a pita pocket without the pocket. It's kind of more of a spongy, low-rise dough. They're commercially available. Get that. Uh, if you have a toaster oven or an oven or a pan, uh, get that hot with some sauce on it. You can buy a pasta sauce or tomato sauce. And uh, the best way to make a sauce, by the way, is not just with tomatoes, but adding some tomato paste to it. It, it takes the acidity away. And also uh, cooked onion takes acidity away uh, and a pinch of sugar takes uh, acidity away. Uh, and then a, a cheese product or if you don't want to use a cheese product, use a vegetable product uh, on top or, or put as much of it as you want. So a simple Greek pita will make a, a quick pita. As a matter of fact, I make those here at home. And very often I'd go out and get a pizza and, and, and I'd be told, you know, the pizza, the pita pizzas that I make here are better than the one, the pizza than you buy at the pizza place uh, very often. Uh, so I would suggest uh, just learn how to make a low rise bread and, and you're not going to be successful uh, until you are. In other words, practice, practice, practice on it. Mm. All right. Steak or beef. I'll just say beef slash steak. Muscle. Right. Yeah. Muscle, uh, beef muscle or bovine muscle. Let's be real. Right. That's what it is. Right. Uh, well, if you're going to eat bovine muscle, what I suggest many times is, uh, uh, well, of course, you know, get the best quality you can. And if it is a very well, uh, a good quality beef uh, steak, uh, depending on the cut, of course, uh, if it's a roast, it needs a. Uh, a lot of cooking. If it's a steak, uh, it could be broiled or roasted. Uh, the advice that I give on cooking steaks is that, of course, it should be a high-quality grass-fed if you can get it, 
organic if you can get it. It costs three times as much, but you know you're not eating this often. Uh, you should have a, a low moisture content. Very often, if you buy uh, beef muscle and you want to cook it, put it in the fridge with a paper towel, come back the next day, you notice how much water is in it. Again, because selling water is the most profitable thing, right? Uh, but if uh, that's why if you look at the many of the prized places that serve beef, they call it aged beef, right? And what that means is literally low moisture content and uh, it's the, there are enzymes in the meat that tenderize, self-tenderizing. But what, what I would do is if when I if I can purvey a good quality piece of beef, uh, I would try to put it on a paper towel or rack in the refrigerator so it dries a little bit. You could actually see it you know, shrinking slightly. Uh, and then I would bring it up to room temperature and salt it and just uh, cook it over a fire uh, without anything else on it and some salt um, or in a pan with some fat, like butter or beef fat, uh, if it's a steak as such, right, um, to be eaten. Because if it's good quality, you want to taste that beef, just salt and maybe some black pepper or something. Now, uh, they're cooking beef in other ways like in stews and pot beef i always prefer very often using uh what are considered french or vietnamese spices meaning if i say vietnamese style spices that was influenced by the french you know where you have anise uh star anise uh ground or not ground uh cinnamon uh, bark right ground or not ground some cardamom uh, garlic whole garlic Fennel seeds, uh, you put that in with your uh, liquid and to make a roast or uh, or to cook the meat that way, uh, it makes it very fragrant and delicious, right? Ah, quite the enlightening uh, exposition there. But um, yeah, I think we'll have to wrap up on that note. With this is, uh, you know, it's funny how this is the longest episode that we've done, and yet it's not something that I consider myself too versed in. But yeah, it was interesting to explore. So um. Yeah, I, mean, I think I'm good. If you have anything you want to conclude with on the topic of food, Greek, I'll let you do that. No, that that would be it. I mean, it's too big of a topic to actually cover in any amount of time. So uh, we'll, we'll just uh, sign off here and uh, come up with something else for the next Sonic. Absolutely. Of course, there will be things to talk about next time we get together for one of these. But um, I hope that our um, listenership has learned something new today and um, that it gives you food for thought. So... Uh, Thank you for tuning into this episode of Greek Speak, and we'll be back again next time.